All right. Let's uh, jump right in with our large crowd. You can hear the fever pitch of everyone chumming around outside. Uh, Let's open with prayer, and then we'll keep this, keep rolling. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for today. I thank you for this wonderful, warmer spring weather and the hope of spring and uh, the upcoming celebration of Easter, and we just pray that you'd be with us tonight as we continue to walk through this gospel of Matthews, and we just pray for your wisdom and discernment and the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we seek to to become more and more shaped in your image as followers of your Son. So be with our time, be with our discussions, and yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, last week, one of the challenges of the spiritual discipline thing was to try and uh, read through or listen to the rest of uh, Matthew, and then when I was doing it, I was like, wow, this this is a lot more than I thought there was. Um, (laughs) So I I did find it quite interesting, again, to... Uh, bite off a big chunk and, and kind of see what, what's coming and what's happening. The one thing that we, again, want to be aware of is as we move into the end uh, of the gospel, it's a really short period of actual time, but we have a lot of content uh, to go over. Likewise, last uh, week, somebody had mentioned, you know, uh, why didn't you talk about this? And there's just there's just certain things that I, we just don't have time to talk about, um, and so it's not, uh, it's not that I don't want to talk about them, it's just frankly we don't, we don't have time. So if there is something that stands out uh, and you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it. You know, I have added this question each week, um, what is something from tonight that sat sideways with you? Uh, it's not maybe something you didn't like. Could be something you didn't like, but just a curiosity of like, well, that just sat with me a little weird. So uh, we're in chapter 20 tonight, and the next week, uh, if, you, if you have the schedule, we are going to um, slow down a little bit, but then April 19th, <laughs> we get two chapters, so that'll be a quick night. So chapter 20, what I want to remind us of is where we're at within the narrative. Uh, Jesus had been t- teaching about divorce, and then, he t- and then he tells us about the children and how children function within the kingdom, and, and then go right into the-, the rich young man who decides that he is not interested in giving up what, he-, what the- he has in this world to follow Jesus. And we get this concluding line of, Uh, But many who are first... Actually, let's just start in verse 28 of 19. Jesus said to them, truly, he's talking to the disciples, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven, again, let's not let this break screw up our thought process. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning 
to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that number should be familiar to us, or that monetary value, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, they went, so they went going out again about the sixth hour, uh, and the ninth hour, so that's like noon and then three o'clock in the afternoon, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so almost the end of the day, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Notice that little echo. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers only, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Again, nice little echo. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered 
their sight and followed him. So, Jesus goes in after telling them the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. This phrase that keeps coming back over and over as he's been talking about the kingdom. And he goes into telling them this parable. Now, one thing, if you haven't read through the rest of Matthew in one sitting, I highly encourage it. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour. Or if you want to listen to it, you're going to see all of these parables. Like It's going to be this rapid-fire parable session as Jesus moves closer and closer to the, to the cross. Likewise, we see in 19, we see this turning towards Jerusalem and Jesus heading on his way to Jerusalem. So he tells this story about this uh, individual who owns property, owns a vineyard, and is hiring people. Again, notice he uses this phrase, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, He's drawing this picture uh, of what the kingdom of heaven is like in an earthly sense. The interesting thing is, as you hear the story, or maybe you've read the story before, I would love to know which of the characters in the story stand out to you most. If you were to say, this parable is about whom or who? Never figure that out. Is it about the owner? Yes. Is it about the kingdom? But what character is, who would you say is the main character in this parable? Like if we were going to give an Oscar to the, to the we were going to nominate somebody as best actor or support or best actress, who would stand for this parable as that person? Or is it an ensemble cast? Okay, the master? Why do we think it's about the master? Who is teaching them? And what is he teaching them? Okay, interesting observation. So that the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus takes his own words and puts them in the mouth of the master, which is a great observation. Notice, though, what do our Bibles say as a heading? It's about the laborers. Exactly, yes. My point exactly. How often is it, though, that we hear these things or we read these things and we, we're like, oh, this is about a bunch of laborers. It's not about the laborers. It's actually about the master. And it is about, as this phrase this, uh, has been brought up before, the superabundance of the master. So remember when we talked about the feeding uh, the feeding miracles, and about all this leftover food. It's about God's super abundance that he wants to provide for his people. And so we see these different individuals or kind of groups of individuals who get to the end, and what do they say? It's a classic human line. This is not fair! I've been working all day in the hot, sweating, and what in the world? How are you going to pay that person the same wage that I got paid? And the master's response is, we made a deal. 
I told you I'd pay you a denarius. You worked a job. You got paid a denarius. And I told these people I would pay them, and I paid them. And so who are you to say to me who gets how much money? And notice in verse 13 he says, friend, friend. <laughs> what? You know, it's the old phrase when somebody's really upset, and you're, you're just like, why are you so crabby? <laughs> it's like, I wasn't until you just said that. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And then he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And it's interesting because one commentator points out how we see almost this interesting echo back when there was this conversation about divorce in 19.3 about what is right. What is the correct thing to do? And Jesus puts the words in the master's mouth to say, Am I not permitted? Is it not lawful? Is it not right for me to do whatever I want with what I have? And he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? And it's so interesting as we think about this in our own lives and how often is it the case that, that we see certain people receiving things that we would deem as God's blessing. And rather than celebrating God's superabundance, we can have this tendency to be like, what in the world? They don't even deserve that. God, I have been faithful to you for fill in the blank. And how quickly we become the person who's grumbling in the field that's like, this is unfair, God. You are blessing them. And what have, look, look at what I've done and, and look at how I've labored for you and where is my blessing? Does this sound familiar? What did the disciples just say earlier in 19? They were like, well, we've left everything for you. And so notice how many times these things get repeated as a way to remind the listener and the reader about the importance of what Jesus is trying to teach as he is moving towards Jerusalem. So rather than celebrating God's provision and abundance, we can have this tendency to say, what about me, God? Where is where is my superabundance? And how often is it the case that we misunderstand that God is like, I have, I have blessed you. you know, Matthew doesn't give us the prodigal son, but that's the exact same imagery that we get here. The prodigal son, the son who stays behind is like, God or dad, what, what about me? And so Jesus gives us and gives his disciples and those that are paying attention this beautiful picture that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not fair. 
And we think so often we can be led down this path to, to want to talk about the justice of God. And yet, this whole gospel, Jesus' whole life, is about the injustice of God. It's about God's willingness to bless those who don't deserve the blessing. It's God's willingness to look at someone who doesn't deserve something and to bless them anyways. You know, we had this kind of funny conversation in our small group. This was a while ago when, when the whole Jeffrey Dahmer thing was blowing up on Netflix. And, and it was like, I don't want to believe that Jeffrey Dahmer has, is in heaven. <laughs> Why not? We become so focused on who's out. Like, well, because I've been faithful for all these years and he does all these terrible things. And then right at the end, he accepts Jesus and poof, voila, he gets the same thing? Except what we miss, again, is if we boil down what God is offering us through Jesus Christ only to heaven, we totally miss it. We totally miss it. A guy that I listen to regularly uh, on, on Tuesday, he, he asked this question, which was like, how brilliant is that? He said, I wonder how many people would follow Jesus if hell wasn't a thing. And I was like, oof. Oof. Because it's not about the worker that shows up at the 11th hour and accepts Jesus. It's not like, well, Let's time this right. It's like when I'm driving and I'm like, I got 40 miles to empty. Now I'm going to go in at 39 miles and fill up my tank. It's about the abundance of God's grace and the provision in the present and in the future. It's about the both and. And again, those who will be first will be last. Those who the world says are the most important are going to find themselves to be the least important. And we've seen this, all of these representations for the past number of verses and number of weeks about how Jesus is painting this picture. And just to remind them, he again tells them, we are going to Jerusalem. And and if you wonder the question, the phrase, going up to Jerusalem, it didn't matter where you were at. If you were going to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. So it's not like, well, they're down south and they're headed north. That's how we would phrase it. Oh, we're going to go up to the cabin or whatever. No, Jerusalem functions as this pinnacle. And so everywhere you go, you go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus reminds them, we are headed to Jerusalem for a very specific reason, and that reason is for me to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and be condemned to death. And notice what he says. 
it's not the chief priests and scribes that are going to kill him because they can't kill him. They need the Romans to execute him because they can't do it because it breaks their law. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Notice this threefold degrading of him. But again, as he has reminded them, and he will be raised on the third day. It's just like, oh, and by the way, we're on a journey, and I'm going to be crucified. And James and John's mother doesn't skip a beat. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, enough about that. I have a very important question. So now the question becomes that I've asked myself, and, and we've kind of, I've asked a few people, and we've asked each other, did James and John put their mom up to this? Because James and John's mother goes to Jesus to make the request. Now, we've talked throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen this motif happen various, at various points. Remember way back when the centurion comes to ask Jesus to heal the, the child that's in his house. People requesting things for other people. So this is not a new thing. The question, though, is like, did these two guys go to their mom and be like, I think, Mom, if you asked him, I think he'd say yes to you. Or is it the case that the mom wants the best for her boys and she thinks, she hears this opportunity. Again, that's why we started back in 19 this, this evening. Jesus says, back in 19, at the end, he says, you will sit on thrones. You will get an opportunity to sit with me on these thrones, these 12 thrones, back in verse 28 of 19. So is it that outlandish of a request? Because she just heard him say, all y'all, 12, well, which is ironic, right? Because Jesus says the 12 of you will sit on thrones, and yet Jesus knows there's only going to be 11 in the end. Anyways, she hears Jesus say, my boys are going to get thrones, and so now she's just jockeying for position. So it's not that big of a deal. Well, if we completely extract this out of its context, we miss the point of what he has been talking about. Again, remember three weeks ago when John was teaching in chapter 18 about the least of these and the little ones and who is going to be the most important and the desire to be important. That desire hasn't gone away. And so she comes to him, and she falls down before him. She kneels down before him. But notice her sons are right there. So I don't know. Maybe they were like, could you do this for us, Mom? I, we don't know. We can just speculate. But notice who does Jesus address? He doesn't address her. He looks at both her sons and says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. He just said, this is where I'm headed. 
And is this what you want to be a part of? Now again, this same model was used back in the Sermon on the Mount. When he begins his ministry, he says, this is what it looks like to be a follower of mine. If you're still in, here we go. So again, he he tells them where they're headed, and they make the request, and Jesus says, do you really know what you're asking of me? Do you really know what you're requesting? And how often is it the case that, that when we request things of God, we don't always know what we're actually asking for? And so could it be the case, some of the things that we ask for that we don't receive is a gift from God? You know, it's like sometime God's greatest gift is unanswered prayers. I think I've heard that before. Is that in the Bible of Garth Brooks? Yes, it is. They don't know what they're asking, and Jesus tells them, you will experience this cup. Now, notice this phrasing, okay, is an allusion forward, an allusion with an A, forward to the garden when he asks his father to take the cup from him. So Matthew is putting these words or using this phrase or Jesus is giving Matthew this phrase to get the reader ready for what's going to come into the, when it happens in the garden. And he says, it's not even my choice. And then he says the most important thing about this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, sounds familiar, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, again, continues to shift the paradigm that exists in the world about how things are going to function. And he says, your understanding of power and authority is not at all what it should be. The power and authority that that exists in the world, and that's why he uses this phrase, among the Gentiles. It's like among the world. The Gentiles, as you've noticed, function as this large category of people, which really represents the world within the narrative. In this world, this is my paraphrase, people in power and position of authority use it to benefit themselves and to diminish the quality of life of other people. That's my paraphrased version of what Jesus says. In my kingdom, that's not how this works. The power and authority that is given to individuals in the kingdom of heaven functions the opposite way. If you want to be great, which is this extended conversation that he's been having, you have to be a servant. And then he doubles down in this duplicate sentence, and he says, you must be a slave. Again, just 
imagine what that would have been like for somebody who grew up hearing for their whole life, God has a plan for our people. He is going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to come and going to take power and bring about revolutionary change and restore the Jewish people to the, to the place that they should be in. And then Jesus shows up. And it's like, he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. We've heard Peter say many times, you are the Christ. And he says, yes. And me as the Christ is a slave. No. Uh, excuse me, could you back up the part where you said the thing about being a slave? No! But how often is the case that we, we have this tendency, this human tendency, and, and it's, you know, maybe we're sick of talking about it, I don't know, we bathe within this cultural soup, we can't get out of it, that tells us what power looks like, what authority looks like, how we're supposed to function. But Jesus tells us that there's something that's not just different, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Again, how often is it the case? Well, we we got to have power. We got we to do things because we need to, we need to have the power to, to make the changes that need to be made. We need to have the authority. We need to put the right person in power to affect change for the kingdom of God in the United States of America. Except that is not biblical. That is not what Christ tells us. And I know it's, that is anti-Christ. To want to grab for power and position and authority in this world is the opposite of Jesus. Jesus says, if you think you want to have power and position and authority, it doesn't look like sitting up here in authority and dictating. <laughs> you know, at the time, Caesar is ruling over. Pontius Pilate is ruling over the people. And that is their dream. Like, if we could only get out of here, and if we could be in power, then we would use the power for good. It's like, God, if I could just win the Powerball, I promise I would use it for good. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you want to know what power looks like, if you want to know what authority looks like, if you want to know what it looks like to be a leader, it looks like service, it looks like being a slave. And as we talk about outreach, spiritual formation, and leadership, leadership is servanthood. Leadership is being a slave 
Who's in? (laughs) If you want to be great, that's what Jesus says, serve. If you want to be the first in line, be the lowest person on the totem pole. Because for them, to be a slave would have meant to be a slave. This is not like a euphemism for something. It's like, my self is owned by someone else. And for us, that person is Christ. And again, I know I went, I went kind of rogue last week, and I went off about, about the importance of serving in children's ministry. To be a follower of Christ is to be a servant. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a slave to Christ. And Paul talks about that. He talks about that regularly. But how often is it the case? We're like, well, yeah, I know, but I got stuff I really want to do. I got things that, you know, I got stuff I want to do. And if, if I do that, then it's really going to mess with my mojo. If I choose to come and clean on a Monday morning or a Friday morning, it's really going to cut into my pajama time and my coffee watching the sunrise. That's what I do on Friday. I wake up late, I make coffee, I listen to initials, and I watch the sunrise, and I'm just... Praise the Lord. (laughs) To serve is to give up the things that we desire for the benefit of other people. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want to have power and position and authority? Start serving. Start being a slave. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So when we talk about this idea of being cruciform or being Christ-like, to be made more in the shape and likeness of Christ, it's to be, not to be more servant-like. Not to be more served. And then he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's fascinating as we talk about various grand theological things have been developed around very small amounts of verses. And so as we talk about this concept of uh, the ransom theory of atonement, here it is. Jesus says, the words of Jesus are that he was a ransom. The challenge is, as many of us know from movies and that sort of thing, if there's a ransom, somebody's getting money because I have what you want, and so you pay me, and I give you what you want, what I've taken from you. But this puts God in debt to Satan if God is paying, who is God paying the ransom to, and is God paying himself the ransom, and it creates some challenges, theological challenges, and that's why there's multiple theories of atonement, and that's why they're called theories and not facts. 
And then notice what Matthew does here. Notice how he has taken us and given us these miracles at various times. Anytime a miracle happens, we should almost go immediately back and say, what just happened? Because the miracle is probably going to coincide with what has already been happening. But again, what, we just lift it out and we miss the context. So they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Matthew gives us this very specific reference. They're going out of Jericho. And I know we've talked about this before. We don't get a lot of specific geographical references. And so when Matthew gives us one, it's of importance. They're on their way. They're getting close to Jerusalem. And, you know, there's a swell of a crowd. And there's two blind men sitting by the road, and they cried. Anyone? Blind men stood by the road, and they cried. No, none of you went to church camp. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That song comes from the Bible. Okay, so just, just here it is. Here's that spot. So they cry out to, to Jesus. And what do they cry out to him? Well, first of all, the crowd's like, enough. You don't matter. You, you have no significance. That's what the crowd is saying. And they're asking for the mercy of the son of David. They recognize. And we've talked about this at various points in time. The people who Jesus is healing, with the people who Jesus heals, give us such a glimpse into who Jesus is. How often is it the case that that the people that are are supposed to get it, they don't get it, and the people that aren't supposed to get it, because they mean nothing in in the grand scheme of the world, they're the ones who get it. And who are the people who see Jesus clearly? The blind people. That is not just a coincidence. They know who he is and that he is the Messiah. I mean, just imagine, just imagine this. Again, you know, we talked about, remember, we talked about this huge, great crowd and somebody comes out of the crowd early on in the Gospel of Matthew and everyone's like, what is this guy doing here? And he's the leper. Or the other time they're in this great crowd, everyone's moving along. And the woman touches Jesus. So the crowd, again, within the narrative structure of Matthew, functions very importantly for us. It's the world trying to push Jesus through through their form, and Jesus breaks out of it to do what he's going to do. And he stops the crowd He calls them to him, and he asks them this question. What do you want me to do for you? And it's interesting, and and I tried this exercise, and I want to encourage you with this exercise. Right now, meaning like right now, Read the sentence to yourself. Okay, that means you have to have your Bible in front of you. Unless you already have, you're like, I already have this verse memorized. Good on you. You gold star. 
as you read the sentence, what do you emphasize? You guys are like, we need a Bible. It's right in front of you. Right in front of you. Matthew 20, verse 32. What do you want me to do for you? As you read that sentence to yourself, is there a particular word that you find yourself emphasizing? And so this week, the spiritual discipline that I have us doing and participating is spending 10 or 15 minutes every day and ruminating on this, meditating on this sentence. Because each word, if we emphasize it, changes how this sentence seems to function. For example, what do you want me to do for you? So is it, about the, is it about me as an individual? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And it takes on this interesting shape, depending on how we are emphasizing the different words, the point is that Jesus takes and he stops. The whole world around him stops. And as he has been talking and teaching about who's important and how the kingdom of God functions and who's going to be first and who's going to be last and who's going to get his attention and who's going to get various things, he takes and he says to these two people, what can I do for you? What is it that you would like me to do for you? And it is such a powerful question. And how can we hear those words? And not just hear those words, but notice what is happening. Jesus stops. He calls them to himself. And he says, what can I do for you today? Imagine if that was our thought every single morning. We heard the words of Jesus say, and you can put your name in there, Eric, what is it that I could do for you today? Because that is who he is. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is saying, I am a servant. What can I do for you? I want to do something for you. And how often, though, we're like, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I'm not worthy of it. My needs don't matter. What I desire is just pushed by the wayside. Jesus says, what, to these two men, what do you want me to do for you? And part of you is like, come on, Jesus, it's obvious. 
It is obvious. But he takes the time to see them and to connect with them and to ask them this intimate, personal question that he wants to ask each one of us. What do you need from me today? And they say, Lord, we desire for our eyes to be opened. Notice the difference between the question that the rich young man asked Jesus last week, and it's in the same arc of this part of the narrative. He wants eternal life. And these two men just want to be able to see. And whether or not it's, it's, it certainly is mostly literal, but how much of it is figurative, let our eyes be opened. And again, I know we've talked about this before, but notice the importance of what happens next. He touches them. He reaches down and he touches them. Who did he touch last? He touched the children last. The people that are, are of nothing in society at that time. These two people who are nothing in society at this time. Jesus takes his hands and he touches them. He could have just been like, whoop, whoop, you're good. We know he's healed people from afar, but he touches them. He sees them. He asks them. He touches them. And immediately, they recovered their sight. And what? And they followed him. So again, we, we so often, and, and part of it is for time, like we don't, have, we don't have three hours to be together. And we do, we choose not to be. I mean, let's just be honest. That was funny, okay? Like, none of you, if Wednesday night was from six to nine, pretty much none of you would be here, okay? We have... The, the person back here who, who has the ability to follow Jesus and is unwilling. And these two individuals, and, and remember Matthew uses this word so effectively. They immediately are healed and immediately follow him. There's no questions. There's no, we got to go deal with Whatever, we got to go back. We don't have to do any of that. Immediately they're healed, and immediately they respond in following Jesus. And it sits in contrast with all these other people that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And Matthew wants us to see these things and to see them effectively. So it looks like we're going to consolidate some groups tonight, so feel free to consolidate your groups as you wish. Um, I would say the two guys groups, there's probably going to be two guys groups, one out by the, in the couches out there and one in the away room because there's couches in there. So if you meet, if you meet in anywhere but out there in the away room, just go to one of those two places, gentlemen, and the women can just kind of figure it out. <laughs>